It was the summer you got lice. And you and Dozy dug through your thick hair to find the tiny black insects and squash them against your fingernails and laugh at the tart sound of their blood-filled bellies bursting. Ah, childhood memories, and a joyful moment which we all share. Welcome to Waywards, where we take a few sidelong looks at literature to wonder where we ought to go. I'm Steve Chisnell, and this week we look at the provocative work of Chimamanda Adichie and her short story, Tomorrow is Too Far. When given the Penn Award, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie was described as giving us an unflinching, unswerving gaze upon the world, and that she shows a fierce, intellectual determination to define the real truth of our lives and our societies. Chinua Achebe called her a new writer endowed with the gift of ancient storytellers. The best biography I've found so far is a 2018 New Yorker essay I've linked on the website. As you might expect, her life has been varied, complicated, controversial, But as I've said before, I don't wish to spend a lot of our time talking about the life of a writer when we have the literature itself to discuss. You can read her biography on your own, and you should. And in this case, her life story is hardly complete. But there are some other issues we need to discuss. First, for me, is the utter difference between Adichie and myself, such that it is a fairly complicated matter for me to talk about her work with much credibility. After all, What can a U.S. grown and educated white male have to say about a Nigerian woman writing through experiences of race, sexism, and diaspora? To this, I offer a few thoughts. As difficult as it may be for me to discuss the works, it is far more troubling than I would not. White silence, male silence, American silence, not about Africa, but about Adichie's topics on Africa, has done more to complicate and worsen them than a few awkward or embarrassing moments of discussion might. More, as we'll discuss, I am one of her intended audiences. So it is not merely inappropriate, but perhaps unjust, not to comment on my experience of the literature. More, though, it is important that I navigate her work self-consciously, making large notes about my own perspectives, biases, expectations, making spaces for her words and experiences to mean what they will, despite my prejudices. Inevitably, I am bound to say one or seven things during this episode which may sound ignorant, neglectful, ill-conceived, or worse. If so, when so, I encourage any and all of you to send me a note to tell me so. We all benefit from expanding our view, and I will be certain to include what you tell me in future talks here. On a related note, I would hardly be the first to make such errors in discussing literature from a foundation of Western bias. Hegel once infamously called Africa an epistemic void. 
It has long been a common practice of Western scholars and thinkers to impose ideas onto Africa instead of seeing Africa as a source of original ideas itself. And why wouldn't we? In fact, my U.S. schooling did quite little to prepare me for anything African at all. When the Nobel Prize for Literature for 2021 was given to Abdul Razak Gurna, I, of course, started looking for his books. Who was this? Where did he come from? Why hadn't I heard of him? No surprise, almost none of his books was available in English from any dealer. Now, the New York Times recently explained that this shortage of Gurna's novels was due to supply chains and printing shortfalls. Yeah, nice try, guys. Paper exists. Ebooks exist, and there have been any number of printings of other, <clears throat> let's just say, less capable writers from other continents. It should not surprise us that there remains, even in our global age, a bit of systemic bias in whose words and stories are promoted, even made accessible. So let's talk about Adichie's mesmerizing short story, Tomorrow is Too Far, from her 2009 collection, The Thing Around Your Neck. And along the way, we might have a conversation about this gulf and what it means. Spoilers ahead, as always. So if you have not read this brief short story, you'll find a link in the show notes and on the website. So give it a read first. We'll wait for you. What is this, anyway? Now, Adichie has received no small amount of praise and of criticism. It's difficult to speak something into new spaces and not shift readers uncomfortably. This story made me uncomfortable in ways I couldn't first identify. But to instantly judge the story is something we wish to avoid, especially before we fully understand what it's up to and what it means and how it means. Adichie suggests across numerous interviews that her credo as a storyteller is that human beings are flawed. There's no room, she says, to be righteous. There is no clean virtue and wickedness, heroes and villains in her works. In addition, she finds herself increasingly blurring the boundaries between fiction and memoir. She says, because when we write fiction, we mine our souls. Of course you put yourself into your fiction. Your fiction is you. Now, note how this idea conflicts with some of our earlier discussion of author intention, however. At the time, I suggested that the act of writing and the act of reading were different, but I also said that words implicitly carry intention as acts, as actions. I agree that authorial intention does not always make its way into texts. I agree that it's difficult to understand the breadth of intent, but this does not mean we must exclude its examination. Here, Adichie is suggesting that there is an intimate overlap between her work and herself. The moral quandary for her characters is how to take control over their own stories. In some ways, she says this is also her worldview. Quote, I am constantly aware of how incredibly important stories are. I think it's important who tells them, how they are told, how the telling is conditioned, how history controls that conditioning, and how power plays a huge role. I think there are many, many gaps. A lot of these gaps are conditioned by the colonial system that we had and we continue to have. There's a lot to unpack here. And unlike some of our earlier writers, 
we have plenty of background information on Adiche and what her thoughts are about the narrative act. Let's keep these ideas in the backs of our minds as we approach the story itself. Traditional Criticism Let's start with the title of the story, Tomorrow is Too Far. It is taken from the Igbo word for the snake, the echi ateka, a venomous snake, probably some form of saw-scaled viper common to Africa and South Asia. A snake exists like this in the area, Grandmama warns about it, and they find its shed skin in the yard. Grandmama says that it gets its name because of its poison. In other words, if you get bit today, it's over in ten minutes. You will not live to see tomorrow. Well, this is particularly sad because it is the narrator's pretending about the snake which kills her brother Nanso. So we have already almost enough. Nanso will not see another day. The snake got him. Or at least the idea of the snake, rather than the reality of it. We could stop there. But really, why would we? Not when a snake is so often such a massive symbol in our cultural consciousness. The simplest question could be, did a snake get Nanso? And of course, yes, the young girl, our protagonist narrator, did. It was her words, her bite, her venom, her hatred, which undid him. He writes, Your hate for your brother Nanso grew so much you felt it squeezing your nostrils. And of course, she had decided firmly enough that there was no going forward, no tomorrow for Nanso. Even at nine, you knew that some people can take up too much space by simply being, that by existing, some people can stifle others. She does say she wants to maim him, hurt him, not kill him. But the venom does what it does. So, how does our snake work as a symbol? Jealousy? Temptation? Are these biblical references? It's tempting... Ha, to always find a Bible reference in literature. And it's really easy, since the Bible is so rich in morals and metaphors, you will find a number of sources online, Sparknotes and others, who make this claim and say, oh, look, the snake is, is representation of biblical temptation. And they just, you know, clap their hands and say, we're done now, let's move on. But I might hold back, and I'm going to tell you why. There really are no other Christian references anywhere in the story. I mean, it can be there, but my point is that the snake can reference jealousy or temptation without being specifically Christian. Grandmama, for instance, does not appear to be Christian, or at least not wholly Christian, as she is so full of traditional Igbo sayings and beliefs. Archetypally, that ancient echo of meaning which some symbols sound Snakes are creatures of power, of change, not necessarily of evil and death. They can also be rebirth, regeneration, transformation, even healing when they shed their skin and are renewed. Oh, and that's how we met the real snake here. It's a change. Something new comes out. Regeneration. Even healing. Is that what our narrator hopes for? By becoming that snake? Is this what she believes will occur? She's nine. 
She doesn't think too deeply. So if she hopes for this, she doesn't do it consciously. Consciously, she's trapped in binary thinking. She loves Dozy. She hates Nonso. This is all she has. She needs her brother to be less so, so she can be more. Adichie writes, The summer you knew that something had to happen to Nanso so that you could survive. Otherwise, she would not herself have a future. To endure this longer, to have it go on as it had been, well, tomorrow was too far. Now, which of the meanings here is the right one? The answer is probably yes. Structuralism and Semiotics. Now we're going to take a quick side trail down the linguistics route and talk about some of the unusualness of language, especially like naming a snake a tomorrow is too far, and etchiateka. The basic term for this is compounding. We bring two words together because when a single word cannot express an idea, we need to invent something new to expand our vocabulary especially in early language acts or as a culture encounters new concepts, this becomes important. There are a lot of examples in the African language of Awulu, for instance. Canoe land. Canoe and land become car. Canoe land. Body and fire means fever. And that's kind of a metaphoric idea. Metaphors are pretty common to bring ideas together to make metaphorically this new concept head hard. Put those two words together and you get someone who is stubborn. More poetic still, you take the word tiger and you combine it with first day of the week and we get eagle. Or press and kill any wulu and you put those two words together and you get something that means a very intense massage. Press, kill. I guess so. Intense is right. Or something like guard house, which means gecko describes the function of the gecko, at least poetically. Sometimes we combine words not for objects, but for concepts. Onye ma eche. We take three words together. Onya, ma, and echi. Onya ma echi. Onya mechi. And I hope I'm pronouncing that final version right. Onya mechi. Which basically means who knows tomorrow. So now, onyamechi is who can foretell what tomorrow holds. A philosophical idea that is so common that we turned it into a single word. Notice here how these concepts carry something meaningful in their connotation. For so long, linguists and other Western scholars maintained that these compounding of words were merely denotative. You put two things together to make another name or an object designed for very practical function. Not so. They carry a richness of meaning. Now, many African scholars have suggested that the richness of meaning in these Igbo traditions can and should be contrasted to the senselessness of most English naming. When we think of how we put words together in English, African scholars have described this as senseless. Heck, I know my last name, Chisnell, somewhere along the line meant gravel road. But I hardly think of the name in that way. And why would I? How many of us do? Personally, I'm not prepared to suggest that English is senseless, but it's often a bit more opaque. 
By this I mean it's harder to understand where these original words came from. Now, some are really easy. Jar lid. Pencil eraser. Got it. But then, what about a word like butterfingers? That's a metaphor, comparison between two unlike things. And it's metonymy, which is a substitution of part for whole, or if you wish, whole for part. You say that someone's fingers are slippery like butter. There's the metaphor, the butter part. But the fingers stand for the whole person. Someone is a butterfingers. It's not that their hands are like butter. Our brains then operate simultaneously in two different modes to deduce meaning. We go metaphor and metonymy at the same time, and it gets a little tricky. We do this with some commonality. Blockhead, cottontail, like the rabbit, ladyfinger for the pastry. In English, the meanings or analysis-ready interpretation are kind of harder to discover. They fade into obscurity. Whether this is because we are just into density and obscurity, which is entirely possible, or something else is a point of contention, even so, we're still doing it. Information highway might be fairly clear to us now, but in a hundred years, will we understand what the heck we were talking about when we put this word for the internet together? Here's a quick carryover from the last episode, Fowls in the Frith, which may be valuable. In ancient times, poets created images and assembled poetry through a literary technique called kennings. Basically, it was the same process of compounding, but for memory and ease. Kennings are descriptive, crystallized metaphors. For instance, in the Germanic languages, we might say whale road for the sea, or maybe fish bath. A ship might be a sea stallion. A king might be the people's shepherd. A bird might be a summer guardian. So these poetic metaphors helped the singers and poets remember and visualize the stories they were telling. In the Scandinavian languages, they went to some next-level stuff, metaphors from the metaphors. So the boat wouldn't be merely a sea stallion, but the horse of the gull's field. Or... Serpent of the Pirate's Moon. What the heck is that? Well, the spear was a serpent, and the pirate's moon was the shape of a shield. A pirate on the sea would see a moon, which is beautiful, perfect, and round, and that would become a shield. So what you have is the spear held by a shieldman. As a result, poetry could become quite obscure. Finding the real meaning without the culture is like solving a puzzle. What is a hail of weapons? Well, that one's pretty easy. Hail is a ice storm. What kind of weapons therefore fall like an ice storm? Battle. A northern battle would be a hail of weapons. A canoe of the desert would be a cart, as told from a seafaring people's view. The important thing is, cannons are a literary device, a deliberate use of metaphor for the purposes of poetry of capturing ideas that language was inept to do on its own, literally. But kennings are not riddles. Riddles are intended to stump, to puzzle over, to confuse, then to solve, maybe, and be enlightened. They're games of lock and key. Kennings and poetry, literature, are not written this way. 
We are intended to understand how to solve these metaphors and metonymies. They are traditional. That is, they are an inherent and tested part of the culture. The people of Beowulf's day certainly understood all these kennings. The people of the 1200s, when Fowls in the Frith was written, did too. Literature is not a code or a riddle, but it is something which requires a pause, a time for connections to settle, and an appreciation. As a sidebar, it is true that some kennings themselves became woven into skaldic riddles, and these were ritualized into secret languages for special cult memberships. That's running a bit far afield right now, and we can discuss it another time. Okay, but that's ancient kennings. Do we do this today? Yes. We put metaphors and metonymy and vice versa when we compound. A hammerhead might be someone who is stubborn. Not a particularly common word now. Jellybean might mean someone who is stupid. You may not think of it that way, but if I used it to describe someone's thinking, really, that's what you thought about that math problem? You're such a jellybean. You'd know exactly what I was talking about. How about this one? A clockwork orange. Or a gutter bunny. Now, my guess is most of my listeners have no idea what a gutter bunny is. But if you're a mountain biker, you know that this is slang for a bicycle commuter. Gutter bunny. More of us are familiar with acid head, a drug user, specifically of LSD. None of these words specifically, uniquely, easily lend themselves to analysis. You almost have to be part of the culture to get it. The point is, it makes little sense to suggest that imagery and metaphor are not important to language. They are implicit in much of our language. They take some or more effort to understand. They carry history. They carry culture which created them. They carry meaning often beyond the mere analysis of their literal relationships. Now, why are we talking about this? Well, let's consider Edice's use of diglossia her practice of introducing words and phrases from Igbo into predominantly English-language narration. Adichie can easily claim ownership of English. She grew up with it, as she did with Igbo. But she deliberately resists granting English what we would call discursive hegemony. It's not necessary that it dominate or take over her thinking or her story. English is not in charge. She is. Therefore, there's sometimes some slippage between language. It's part of the narrative. In one story of the Thing Around Your Neck collection, called Ghosts, one character slips from English back to Igbo when speaking of death in the family. This is what people do. This is what language means for them. So Adichie had a choice in using the Igbo word echeeteka, or merely snake. She felt it was important to do so, Chinua Achebe and other multilingual speakers and writers face the same choices. When they select an image-laden word, it merits some looking into. Some choices are merely replacements for English, but some are selected because the meanings in English are simply not entirely equivalent. Take the word chi, which appears in Chinua Achebe's works frequently, for example. You can understand it as a personal spirit or personal god, perhaps a quick, literal explanation. But it is, of course, quite a bit more far-reaching. What is the relationship between the person and the personal God? Is it merely a personal God or also a collective of gods? Are there rules or limits on what a person or chi can do? 
Is chi intentioned or a mere force like fate? It's a complex term and will be used in various ways throughout the literature and cultural history. There is no easy English equivalent for it. Our Tomorrow is Too Far is a fairly easy one to start out with in African literature. Others, like Chi, become more challenging. I should say, some have called Adiche's use of language market-targeted exoticism. That she's basically using Igbo words to titillize readers with their own fetishism for what is different. First, knowing that Adichie is particularly sensitive to exoticism, a topic addressed in several of her other works, I find this a bit of a stretch. More, though, the accusation itself, that using Igbo words as a marketing technique, implicitly offers a binary. Apparently, using language of homeland is either, one, authentically meaningful, or two, mere capitalist exploitation. These are pretty reductionist claims. And while I think such an argument demands that we acknowledge it as a possibility, that we investigate the functions of its use, we need to allow the complexity of language to withstand such single-minded claims to meaning. It's worth examining the Tomorrow is Too Far connection. It's the title of her work. It's the name of the object which is both real and unreal. There's meaning here, and it may extend beyond the ability of English to capture it. Literally. Deconstruction. We definitely need to take a moment to talk about the second person narration. You know what I'm talking about. That use of the pronoun you throughout the entire story. In first-person narration, we have an I who's a narrator. I went here. I climbed the tree. Third-person narration, he climbed the tree. Those are common. Second-person you? Well, it's less uncommon as fiction grows and continues to experiment, but it's still unusual enough to note and examine. When I first read the story, I was pulled into the tragedy immediately, and I knew partly it was from the narration. The story really crunches a reader when you reach those closing paragraphs and realize the narrator's self-realization that she is guilty of killing her brother, and that she has been carrying this around with her through the past 13 years. She does not say she feels guilty, or even that she feels bad. Her own mother at the time asks her if she's okay. She sounded fearful, as though she suspected that you were all right. And we suspect that she does not feel remorse. But is there no feeling for letting him die? That can't be. For me, on that first reading, I found myself, distant as I was, while American male that I was, drawn too deeply into that common humanity of resentment and grief of this little American girl in Nigeria, pulled in in part by a simple pronoun, I was always you, and it was done to me in a way where so many other writers had failed. Jay McInerney did it famously in his 1984 novel, Bright Lights, Big City. But I was far less likely to be seduced by a you which made me a hedonistic cocaine user. More easily, apparently, I could be a young killer of children. Thanks, Adiche. Even so, even so, Kenneth Harrow writes about the narrative function of what he calls the double I. That is, There is a self that is real, 
and there is a self which is constructed by the use of I. When I write about myself, I am a chocoholic, I am frustrated by neoliberalism, these aren't me exactly. They're more personifications of me, creations of me for you readers to consume. There is the written me, a sign or signifier of me, which I confess on a page, and the actual me, what that written me refers to, the signified. In a story, the written me is what you see. The actual me, the uh, less fictitious one, is hidden away. By using you as the narrative pronoun, who is you, and who is speaking the word you? I understand completely why the narrator might wish to distance herself from the events which occurred, even though she never once admits a feeling about them. To be sure, the narrator, older now, has a lot of feelings. The smallness of Grandmama's house, the smallness of her grave, and a ton of feelings about Dozy, who stands quietly behind her through the, virtually the entire story. You feel a rush of gratitude and pity and love and contempt for Dozy for not wanting more, for accepting so little. And she wonders about love as if she was never fated to get any. But she never expresses feelings about her brother, except those she had when she was nine. Who is the you that is speaking? And to whom? The narrator, I think, is not speaking to me, the white guy in Michigan who is reading this in 2021. The narrator is older now, 22 perhaps, and is speaking to the other girl, the one who is nine who enacted this tragedy and destroyed her family. There are two girls here in this story, one revisiting and coping but lost in the memory, and the one she's talking to, scolding, accusing, reconciling. You had fought with yourself until you felt the sweat running down your arms, but you succeeded in not thinking about him. She is, of course, as any of us would be, conflicted, compounded by guilt, repression, remorse, abandonment, and she's desperate to keep that you, that little girl who did this, separate from the one who is telling us the story, no matter what age she is. Which is more real, more actual, than the other? I have suggested before that we must work to author our own stories. I never said that this work would be easy or without consequence. Settle in, kids. Is there more still? This is indeed a vicious little story, compassionately told, but isn't Adiche famous for her feminism and politics, her attacks on American ideas of Africa, stuff like that? Sure. And is any of that in this story? The answer we're going to have to move carefully and take a few side trips. To begin, I will say that there's little we've discussed already which I would call wrong. The question of literary interpretation isn't about right and wrong exactly. It's about how much meaning we might discover. So the question I often use is, and what else? Feminism. So I want to begin this examination in feminism. 
because it's currently where Adichie's discussions live, at least at large, and because it offers us one clear path into this story, that this is a story about favored males cannot be ignored. Now, we might well have started elsewhere, and doing so may actually lead us in another direction still, but here we are. Adichie has obviously emerged as a powerful voice in the feminist dialogue. But she's careful to note, and you can watch any of her videos or read her books on this, that the term feminism is problematic across various political circles and across borders. The challenge of language has caused her a fair amount of frustration and criticism. What she says in one interview will be heard across all conceptual communities and interpreted from that particular community's view. And misinterpreted. Adichie has said, for instance, that from the progressive left in the United States comes, quote, a certain kind of youthful, social media-savvy feminism that is not my home. Adichie is hardly the only one. In the 1990s, African author Flora Nwapa had similar struggles. An ordinary woman writing about what she knows. That's how she described herself. But is that even permitted? My point is, what you and I may understand or believe about feminism might not be what someone in another community thinks about it or what Adichie does. I would never want to challenge theorists Helen Sassou and Judith Butler or Julia Kristeva, but what if their theoretical ideas are different from what she knows? So what do we do with this problem of contrary feminisms out there? Let's talk about Feminist Standpoint Theory for a Minute, a sociological approach to feminism, which basically argues that feminism should be understood from the standpoint of the women who relate their experiences. It makes three principal claims, according to Dorothy Smith. One, knowledge is socially situated, a huge topic on its own, but two, Marginalized groups are socially situated in ways that make it more possible for them to be aware of things and ask questions than it is for the non-marginalized. And, three, research and thinking, particularly that which is focused on power relations, should begin with the lives of the marginalized. Now, this is both important and confusing. First, remember what I warned about at the beginning in discussing how Western ideas want to write their own thinking onto the epistemic void, which is Africa. We've been doing that for a few hundred years, yes? It's racist for sure. It's the kind of gatekeeping which says that I over here at Princeton or Rutgers will decide what events and problems are worthy of notice. And that, by the way, I do hope they sound like my own. There is racism in Nigeria, for instance, but as an American reader, I have to be cautious that I realize that the slavery in the United States and colonialism in Nigeria resulted in different forms of systemic racism. And do I truly understand the role my own cultural history has played in the past and current practices of Nigeria? The same is true of males reading the stories of women. And by now this season, I think we see a bit of a theme here. Males writing the lives of women. Therefore, the non-marginalized Western males in this approach must make the first gesture at stepping away from their presumptions and allowing inquiry to start with whoever is not them. 
You've heard me discuss disdainfully the binary opposition, this yes-no, right-wrong thinking which so dominates and simplifies our idea-making, what I've described as a false consciousness. It may be important to consider that this form of thinking has been fostered by the traditional scholarship that's out there, that is, Eurocentric male. Set it aside. Let another form of idea-making take hold. This requires nothing less, though, than allowing marginalized authors to craft a new epistemology. Put more simply, women's lived experiences should be interpreted as sources of knowledge. Notice, by the way, how this is a rather proletariat idea as well, that anyone isolated from places of power, of authority, of authorship, is entitled to that space to create to be heard, to enact. Now realize that this may all be really difficult. Wait a minute, Steve. Create a new epistowat? Epistemology. Any statement which answers the question, how do we know? Which separates justified belief from opinion. Epistemology is what we know. A new way to think and make meaning and know the world? How the heck do we do that? Well, it's not a small undertaking, made more challenging still by the truth that women aren't the only marginalized group, nor are Africans, nor are blacks, nor are the poor, etc. And in Adichie's case, we have several intersections of marginalization. We're just beginning with feminist. And how do you make meaning from nothing? The human mind builds its ideas from other, earlier ideas, doesn't it? We categorize naturally, we network, we connect. That's how we use our reason. How do you want us to erase the history of our meanings for some new way? But look, we don't have to have it all worked out right now. It's enough for the moment to ask the question and make the first gesture. If you're not speaking from the standpoint of the marginalized, can you take a minute and step back a bit? And now let's let Adiche's story breathe a bit more and see what we see. And here's a point where I suggested at the beginning today that I was in a difficult place. Right now, it's just me speaking out there, which is why I encourage your feedback, addenda, corrections, and insults, and it won't always be just me at Waywards. We've got some other voices joining us down the road a bit further. I'm fortified for the moment by Adiche's own phrase, we should all be feminists. So here we go. There is... To look again at our story from a feminist direction, more than one crime here. More than one act of poison spread by our child narrator. And I think it's worth examining since Adiche gives it a bit more space narratively than even the death of Nanso. It's the sowing of enmity between the narrator's two elder women. Everyone in the story makes time to revere the male prodigy Nanso. Dad moves about the world, self-assured his legacy will continue. Dozy sits silently as a child of a sister. Mother loves the son and ignores the daughter. And Grandmama does the same, openly scoffing at her granddaughter's ideas while empowering Nanso. With Dozy and Dad in the backgrounds, the two elder women are situated in a place to move the family dynamics. That they don't is a problem, but the narrator's decision to lie to her mother about Grandmama's role in the death divides the two utterly. Oh, and look at the rift that opens. While these women may well have bonded as women, it is the other cross-sections which burst. Between families, 
which will result in divorce, between classes, between nations, between religions. Her mother calls her mother-in-law a stupid, fetish African woman. But from the narrator's perspective, the two women are identical, in at least their idolization of the young male. In other words, what ultimately drives them apart, despite their bond as women, is that this particular bond as women is the patriarchal lineage question, a male-created tradition. The first thing they fight over is the future of the family and where the male body will be buried. I describe this as a crime, and from a position of the marginalized, it may well be seen this way. The force which has power over us will seek to divide us, to turn us against one another. It is a method for maintaining power. Traditional patriarchal systems then will seek to divide women, pit woman against woman. These two women, seemingly full participants in these traditions, are prey to a young woman who becomes jealous of that relationship. Some critics have suggested that the role these women have is to play Mother Africa as metaphor, to be mothers to African boys, and nothing more. By blaming her grandmother for the death, our narrator unknowingly plays upon a fragile status inside that system. Who are these women except as upholders of the family male name? And for what reason does she lie? A completely valid one. Our narrator asks, fairly pointedly several times, Why do you hate my body? Why do you hate the woman's body? It is the kind of question which might, in other circumstances, have brought women together. But instead, quote, You wanted to mar the perfection of his body, to make him less lovable, less able to do all that he did. Instead of raising the question, our narrator attacked the male, and claimed another woman did it. It's also true that our young narrator, still caught up in a binary way of thinking and feeling, love and hate, claims to have as much love for the other male dozy as she has hate for Nanso. It is her own way of practicing her future role, of seeking affirmation from men, perhaps a role that even now she's not fully escaped. After all, the only reason she has to love him is when she ended up exploring his male body earlier, Today, the most important question she has for him is, What did you want that summer? What did you want? Perhaps imagining that it might be her. She has spent 13 years with sweat running down her arms in an effort to forget him. What else might she have done? She saw, even as a child, the awful isolation of the patriarchal culture of Igbo society. She acts in resistance to it, and it destroys the women around her. Now she returns, everyone thought she never would, to seek what? Self-affirmation? Redemption? What could that even look like? Justice, fairness, freedom, equality. How are these handled under patriarchy? I don't know exactly. This isn't a new question for us, is it? I do remember this. Aristotle said that virtue, moral goodness, can only exist in a state of freedom. And Mary Wollstonecraft said later on this that in a society where women are not free to pursue their dreams or to control their bodies as men do theirs, women cannot be expected to be virtuous. 
They may comply with the law, social and cultural norms, but that compliance cannot be judged as virtuous. A well-behaved or properly mannered woman is not, by definition, good. She is compelled. Adichie writes, You don't remember if it was right then or later that you felt you had not come to the end of something, rather that you had come to the beginning. It is a powerful, evocative, and ambiguous line, without any neat closure or clear direction to it. But Heidegger said, A boundary is not that at which something stops. The boundary is that from which something begins its presencing. Adichie doesn't give us much an answer to this crime or its redemption except to wonder at what women choose to remember. In other works, Adichie does address something important, though, and that is that a binary division which characterizes some Western feminist thought should not exist in Africa. Women and men, together, must work collectively for a fairness for all. Our narrator was not equipped to find this direction. She has doubled herself in anguish over what was resulted. As readers, we are horrified at the truth of the story. What other provocations should we need to begin the work? But the work for a feminist epistemology is not the only work before us. Bakhtin's Way Intersectionality coined by legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw, theorizes that the multiple oppressions, whether on the basis of race, class, gender, sexuality, nation, so forth, do not operate independently of one another, but must be understood as intersecting oppressions. You see already that it was a short jump from feminism to African feminism. We need to recognize that what we have discussed so far is still only a small aspect of the story. It comes together and splits apart, as do so many of Adichie's works. In The Dialogic Imagination, when thinking of languages of power which dominate the marginalized, one of my favorite thinkers, Mikhail Bakhtin, writes, The privileged language that approaches us from without is distanced taboo, and permits no play with its framing context. It has great power over us, but only while in power. If ever dethroned, it immediately becomes a dead thing, a relic. But as I warned, this is Western, or at least Russian, thinking. Even Bakhtin here is thinking in binaries, a simple within-without, an inside-and-outside view. He was, after all, working in Stalin's Russia, so... But Adichie, I think, has found her power and alienation in the bridging and displacement of these two entities, in the complexity of characters who live multiple languages of differing degrees of power and loss. No utterance is singularly one of power or of victimhood. Our young, foolish, neglected narrator, of course, thinks still in these absolutes, partly from age, partly from how she's treated by tradition. The story says that your hate for your brother Nanso grew so much you felt it squeezing your nostrils, while your love for your cousin Dozy ballooned and wrapped around your skin. It was the summer. You watched a mango tree crack in two near-perfect halves during a thunderstorm, the kind when the lightning cut fiery lines through the sky. This kind of thinking is destructive. Nevertheless, 
This insider-outside conceptualization has become fairly pervasive in discourse. It's not without its merits, I, as I have already argued, am an outsider, but it is hardly sufficient to discuss the entirety of the politics at work and meaning-making. The Close Analysis Before we explore a bit more deeply still the other avenues of meaning in Adichie's work, I want to pause briefly to examine a small section of the story just so we can see her technique, her ability to gently weave in additional layers of division, of intersecting dynamics. This is the paragraph we have of the memory of Nanso's American funeral. At Nanso's funeral in a cold cemetery in Virginia with tombstones jutting out obscenely, your mother was in faded black from head to toe, even a veil, and it made her cinnamon skin glow, like placing a very ripe corn against a blackboard. Your father stood away from the both of you in his usual dashiki, milk-colored cowries coiled around his neck. He looked as if he was not family, as if he was one of the guests who sniffed loudly and later asked your mother in hushed tones exactly how Nanso had died, exactly how he had fallen from one of the trees he had climbed since he was a toddler. I've placed the entirety of the passage into the show notes for you to see, if you'd like. When I'm reading a passage closely for its meaning, I often begin with a simple framework of five terms to investigate, suggested by Nancy Dean. Diction, imagery, detail, syntax, tone. Now, there are a lot of other ways to go. If you have your own that works, awesome. But it's a heck of a lot easier than trying to remember 400 literary terms to see what might exist. Let's look at just a couple of these. Imagery. Look at this cold Virginia in juxtaposition to the hot, flat grave of Nigeria. Even now, does our narrator believe Nigeria is better? It's a stark scene, this funeral. Not unexpected, but completely different from the African backyard, the place of his death where a warm earth greeted Nanso's falling body. But most telling is this choice of diction, this word choice from that first sentence. Obscenely. The tombstones jut out obscenely. Obscene. It's unnatural, offensive, repulsive, not to be tolerated. Our narrator has much to say about Grandmama and Nanso, but she was not offended by Nigeria, even by the lice which instead gave her entertainment. Looking for a moment at details, what is included, what's not included. The father, for instance, he's dressed like Africa. He's looking like Africa, but he's not in Africa. He does not go to Nigeria but he does seem to go everywhere else, an issue of privilege and money. He desires culture and connection. He can afford it, but he doesn't seem to go home, nor wish to. He is, unlike everyone else, a little too heavily costumed, like the guests in the same sentence who sniff loudly. Why do we get that one detail? They sniff loudly to mark their sorrow for others, rather than know it themselves. They're more interested in the tawdry details of the death than in consoling and sharing the grief of the family. We would expect guests to share grief. These do not. They just sniff loudly. Notice us? We're, we're upset. We're sad. Father is someone who has fled the actual Nigeria while venerating the idealized Nigeria he can capture in art shows and costume 
distancing himself from the ugliness of its reality for one he travels the world constructing. It's almost like he constructs a double eye for Nigeria. This is just a quick look at this passage, but one of so many in Adichie's works which open up layers of relationships, of complexities in the otherwise voiceless and minor characters. Whatever we may say of the politics and themes Adichie offers us now, they are not simple. Sociological theory. We have to at last then ask the larger questions about Adichie's stories, which often accompany her larger works. Is this a story with a political message? Are the comments I just made about Dad's outfits an argument about Nigerian politics? You want a yes or a no? No. That's not what this is about, right? We're making spaces, looking for what Adichie tells us in the story, how she wants to author the message, teach us what she knows. To simply give you a neat and tidy yes or no would open half of us up to praise her more, if her politics were the right politics, of course, and the other half of us to criticize her. She gets enough of that. You know, I came across a wonderful student paper from Trinity College, from Omolara Abiona, who worked to capture exactly the problem of messaging through a sociological approach. She says that, quote, Adichie explores modern-day Nigerian experiences from a diasporic, intersectional feminist standpoint. We can distinguish personal troubles from public issues, but we will see them as interconnected. It isn't, then, that one writes a political novel, necessarily, or merely a story, but that our lives almost always inhabit spaces where our relationships and the underlying politics intersect, underscore. And more, what does politics even mean when we're talking about human intention? Can one person's intent be politics? Or must it be a collective act? If we wish to read the narrator's actions as the tragedy of a little girl's decision, that's partly, even mostly, true. Do we wish to see them as part of a larger structure which has worked upon her? We have already seen that this is the case. Do we now wish to see this incident of Nanso's death as an indictment? A call to action? Well, is that all this is? A political manifesto? Certainly not all. In sociological theory, we should consider that all written works contain four interacting dimensions. Intention, in other words, Adichie and what she's about. Reception, uh, of the reader, that would be you and me. Comprehension, what we understand of the work. And explanation, the impact that it finally has upon us. Notice that what we've done, though, suddenly is we we recognize that the meaning of the work is no longer merely within the work, but the meaning lies in the dynamics of what is done with it, to it, and for the work. No matter what Adichie intended, and we can investigate that, I as a reader or a Nigerian boy as a reader, or an elderly Slavic woman as a reader, will find something in it which speaks to me. The resulting comprehension, meaning-making, will have occurred, each of us fueled by our own personal and political circumstances. And then there will be an effect. Now, this may feel like a fancy explanation for what readers always do with stories, but here I might point out a particular impact. While there have been numerous scholarly essays and popular interviews with Adichie, how many podcast discussions have posed the question of politics around Tomorrow is Too Far? 
And who will this discussion reach? And what will be believed about the meaning of the story? And what will be the impact? And now we have a better way to understand the dimensions of this approach. Is it Adiche who has offered a political message? And or is it our discussion of it? And who is the author of that discussion? Now, Chide Amuta has offered us an additional framework to think about the influence of texts like Adichie's. She suggests that we might also consider the indebtedness of an African story to the African oral narrative tradition, the extent of influence on the African story from alien, mainly Western, traditions, the criteria for the evaluation of this African story, and the role of the African storyteller in contemporary African society, especially in its political manifestation. Ooh. While some of these do not seem to apply to Adichie, they remain important. The Africanness of Nigerian Adichie is not a small question, and that identity centers or decenters it in terms of its politics and political efficacy. The Western influence, equally so. How we measure a story, or epistemically form and merit its meaning as authentic, is not a small question nor is the author's role in the larger social sphere. Now, each of these enormous points I have to save for later discussions, except to point out now that Adiche is not merely African. She is part of a diaspora, which is itself yet another intersection which we must consider as part of the marginal politics at work. Let's look at our narrator, and implicitly our author, as a member of an African diaspora. A diaspora usually has several qualities. First, they, or the ancestors, have been dispersed from a specific original center to two or more other regions. Second, they retain a collective memory, a vision, or maybe myth, about their original homeland, its location, its history, its achievements. Three, they believe that they are not, and perhaps cannot be, fully accepted by their host society, and therefore feel partly alienated or insulated from it. 4. They regard their ancestral homeland as their true ideal home, and as the place to which they or their descendants would or should maybe eventually return, when conditions are appropriate. 5. They believe that they should, collectively, be committed to the maintenance or restoration of their original homeland, and to its safety and prosperity. And 6. They continue to relate personally or vicariously, to that homeland in one way or another, and their own solidarity is defined by the existence of that relationship. How does this definition of diaspora, this explanation of people within it, apply to Adichie? Our narrator in the story floats between worlds, but neither of them is exactly a valued home, however. Her family is part of a mixed nationality host land, that sends her in summers to better learn her Nigerian homeland culture. Her memories of homeland are, differently, not ideal. There is no hoped-for return here, and the one she does return to as an adult enrages her. Most of all, she's not collectively a part of anything, it seems. Who is with her now? Consider how our narrator responds to Dozy's simple wish for her. Quote, A rush of gratitude and pity, and love, and contempt for Dozy, for not wanting more, 
for accepting so little. If Dozy perhaps represents current Nigeria for her, it is a Nigeria contemptible for its simplicity and lack of ambition, pitiable for its resignation to tradition even while she loves it. But don't read it that way. Even as feelings merely for Dozy, the absent, ever-backgrounded, but remaining man in her story, the one whose story we never hear at all, our narrator's feelings are a trifle complicated. What does she want now? What was so giant a moment for her thirteen years ago is now a shriveled grandmother in a grave. There's nothing for her here, nothing to return to, and not enough left to rebuild. And this is all getting confusing. Maybe this story has nothing to do with diaspora and its effects on the human psyche. Nothing at all. But if this were true, why these details of the back-and-forth journey? The parents' almost guilty decision to send their children each summer. The awkward traveling of the father. The mother who blames herself for her obsession with the Igbo while also cursing them. The friend who tells the narrator that she will never return. Here's what we can say. It's complicated. And I can offer you lists of ingredients, questions to consider, facts to mull over, definitions to think about, and they still won't quite all fit. We know the basic elements of general populations who have been scattered from their homelands, but knowing this does not, on its own, help us understand Adiche's experience or that of her characters. It's not that they fit, it's what their experiences speak of, which often, very often, does not fit. It's the misfit of the epistemology we work with that speaks to the failure of the knowledge-making, not the failure of the writer. And this is what we mean about letting the writer create their own epistemology. Nothing, no framework that I offer will fit perfectly nor should I force it to. Now, is that politics? Adichie has been asked this question before directly, several times. She answers in a variety of ways, but here is one way that resonated with me. She said, I don't think that all writers should have political roles, but I do think that I, as a person who writes realist fiction set in Africa, almost automatically have a political role. In a place of scarce resources made scarcer by artificial means, life is always political. In writing about that life, you assume a political role. My first experience of an African author, Chinua Achebe, he needed to identify as a political writer to draw attention to the intellectual seriousness of the assertion that pre-colonial African societies were not made up of savages clapping their hands and stamping their feet. His role was clear. All writing is politics, he said. As a writer, you are either against the emperor or in favor of the emperor. He saw no other stance. But that was a writer of the 20th century, writing back to the colonizers of the 19th, writers like Kipling and Conrad. What is a Dice for the 21st century writing two and four? Remember, here's Heidegger again. A boundary is not that at which something stops. The boundary is that from which something begins its presencing. Writers of this time, like Adiche, do not write at boundaries or from the crossroads. In the words of Abomiyama Nanayameka, 
and they write the crossroads. Here is that student writer, Omalara Abiona, again. She says, A reader who rarely sees themselves in literature will think they can only be vessels for every story but their own. They will erase themselves in their own stories and reinforce the visibility of the already seen. The ability to tell nuanced stories about marginalized people is essential in humanizing them. Every time Adiche says that she's just telling a story of her own, I wonder at an idea like this. Is she, as her career grows, becoming more comfortable inheriting a title where stories need not be particular, merely personal, merely unique moments? Has she already arrived? Michel Foucault addressed an idea called heterotopia, a space for language, for story, for discussion, which is other, disturbing, intense, incompatible, contradictory, even transformative. If there was a set of words I might choose to describe this story, that would be a good list. A personal reflection. It's uh, been quite a journey this round, and I had no idea how long our walk would take us this time. I know that as we have these talks, I'm framing meaning for us. I offer theorists ideas, questions, practices, applications. I'm creating epistemological spaces for us to think in. These two will be challenged, but let me point out a few along the way that may be shaping your thinking, fairly or unfairly. Uh, one is I, I place authors next to each other. Sometimes these are writers or works who otherwise might never meet. What does this do to our thinking? More, should I, for instance, have even linked Achebe and Adiche? What does doing so do to how we understand her works? What does it mean when I do this? When I link Chopin's Louise Millard to The Bird in a Gilded Cage, or also to The Sisters in Goblin Market. Like I, I linked Fowls in the Frith to a gospel, a, a creepy children's lullaby in The Wheel of Time. Now Adiche and Achebe? While these juxtapositions may help us in forming ideas, they also frame a space in which those ideas might exist and thus eliminate others. Do I limit our thinking of Adiche when I mention her, as so many others do, and she herself does, with a father of African literature, Chinua Achebe? Does she now have to, what, measure up? Or does she, in the tradition of early authorship, need to imitate and improve. Juxtapositions of works like this can be anchors for us. I would prefer they be markers. That is, stop here and note, make a connection where you see one. Don't be compelled to call this a final stop. We've asked some questions which cannot be addressed with clear A or B choices. No binary oppositions, no closure just complication. That's okay. Our path ahead is still long. And, after all, we've only been looking at one story of hers. 
how can we know Adichie without also reading, for instance, uh, Americana or Half a Yellow Sun or We Should All Be Feminists or any dozen of her interviews or talks? But one more, one more moment, moment from, from the, the story. story. Uh, Such, Such a, a moment. moment. An open moment. A moment you felt rather than saw the blueness of everything, of life itself. The pure azure of one of your father's paintings. Of opportunity. Of a sky washed clean by a morning shower. Then you screamed, A snake! It's the Echieteca! Another window opens up, and through it the blue life of nature. And a woman has an idea, decides. Both are bound by male power, both captive in spaces enclosed by male privilege, both provided for, but utterly alone. And perhaps both naive. Louise Millard has her fever. Our narrator here is drawn by Dozy with starry eyes at the time she has her self-realization, an image of idealism, of naivete. Many stories matter, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie writes. Stories have been used to dispossess and to malign but stories can also be used to empower and to humanize. Stories can break the dignity of a people, but stories can also repair that broken dignity. See you next time. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and find us along with so many supplements, bonus episodes, and other surprises at waywardstudio.com. That's waywardstudio, two S's in the middle, dot com. Thanks for listening. And now, go read something. Podcast is by Brandon Miles. Chapter headings by Natalie Harrison and Sarah Skaleski. The Waywards Podcast is a production of Waywards Studio. Find us at waywardsstudio.com.